Hello, Dr. Deanne Ross here. I'm the Love Theorist. This is another offering from my bookshelf that is part of the various sources of knowledge and wisdom from others um, that I'm using to build a theory of love. Uh, one of the most exciting books I've ever read and most impressive people who is the reason this book is in the world uh, comes from a person called Suzanne Simard and her work is some of the most important research and wisdom and engagement with um, Mother Earth and the people who care for her um, that I think is around and fairly accessible at this time. I came to Suzanne Simard's work by wondering whether I could begin to understand what trees might be communicating with us and find a language um, to communicate with them. And in so doing, what I came across uh, in Suzanne Simard's work is uh, actually scientific proof, rigorous empirical scientific proof, nonetheless, that uh, backs up thousands of years of Indigenous people's wisdom um, that trees communicate with each other, trees are social beings, trees are love treeified. <laughs> um, and so I've been really inspired by her work and I wanted to start 2023 with my first offering um, being her work and uh, in particular focusing on her book, Finding the Mother Tree. Uh, the subheading is called Uncovering the Wisdom and Intelligence of the Forest. And it's dated 2021 and is from Penguin Books. Um, and I thought for a start, I would just read some descriptions from the book itself before momentarily segueing to an excerpt of her work in a piece of my writing. Uh, and that's a piece of her work from a TED talk she gave about her early experiments that proved that trees communicate with each other. Um, so just for a minute, by way of introducing who um, Suzanne Simard is and how she's regarded uh, by others, I'll just read some lead comments from her book. Uh, that's Finding the Mother Tree. Um, and so the front page um, inside the cover describes Susan Simard um, as being raised in the Monashi Mountains of British Columbia in Canada. She's a professor of forest ecology in the University of British Columbia's Faculty of Forestry and has earned a global reputation for her research on tree connectivity and communication and its impact on the health and biodiversity of forests. On the back, back page of the book, it says... Uh, the story of a botanist battle to establish that trees not only talk but cooperate is vital for our times. Since Darwin, biologists have always maintained that survival is about the selfish gene. Simard's work upends that. Finding the mother tree has come at a crucial moment. That's Rosie Boycott of the Financial Times. The woman who looked at the forest and saw a community, Simard has spent decades with her hands in the soil, elegantly detailed, Deeply personal, astonishing. It's Jonathan Slate from the New York Times. A scientific memoir as gripping as any drama series, The Wisdom of a Life of Listening to the Forest. Kate Kilway from The Observer. 
and a reminder to listen to our wilder selves and to remember with humility how little we know of the complexities of the natural world. That's Tiffany Francis Baker from The Guardian. Okay, so before going into the actual book by Simard, I wanted to read to you um, some excerpts from her TED Talk uh, called How Trees Talk to Each Other, which is available on YouTube, and she did this talk in 2016. So this is this is uh, my excerpts, as I was saying, from her TED Talk in my book, The Revolutionary Social Worker. And um, on that on that book of mine's page eighty four, this is what I wrote. The following excerpt from a TED talk by Simmer, twenty sixteen, conveys that there is much humans do not know. She suggests that perhaps we care not to know about the life force of trees, for what may then be asked of us. Her scientific research over many years used radioactive trace substances placed into trees and provides a glimpse of how trees communicate and support each other. Simard talks at length about the nature of underground microscopic organisms and nutrients. The organisms create networks of complex transfers of substances and messages between the trees near each other. This in itself is fascinating and alerts humans to tread carefully, literally, around trees. Simard's research also asks us to appreciate that just because we can't see something happening is not to assume nothing is happening. So now we just move into the some excerpts of the transcript from her TED Talk. The evidence was clear. The C-13 and C-14 were showing me that Paper Birch and Douglas Fir were in a lively two-way conversation. It turns out at that time of the year, in the summer, that Birch was sending more carbon to fir than fir was sending back to birch, especially when the fir was shaded. But then in later experiments, we found the opposite, that fir was sending more carbon to birch than birch was sending to fir. And this was because the fir was still growing while the birch was leafless. So it turns out the two species were interdependent, like yin and yang. How were the paper birch and Douglas fir communicating? Well, it turns out they were conversing not only in the language of carbon, but also nitrogen and phosphorus, and water and defence signals, and chemicals and hormones. Information. This below-ground mutualistic symbiosis called microchryza was involved, which connects different individuals in the forest. Individuals not only of the same species, but between species like birch and fir. And it works kind of like the internet. Simmered outlines a detailed picture how the networks work, and I continue with an excerpt of her transcript. The young seedlings have established within the network of the old mother trees. In a single forest, a mother tree can be connected to hundreds of other trees. And using our isotope, isotope traces, we have found that mother trees will send their excess carbon through the mycorrhizal network to the understory seedlings. And we've associated this with increased seedling survival by four times. Now, we know we will all favour our own children, and I wondered could Douglas fir recognise its own kin. So we set about an experiment, and we grew mother trees with kin and stranger seedlings. 
and it turns out they do recognise their kin. Mother trees colonise their kin with bigger mycorrhizal networks. They send them more carbon beyond below ground. They even reduce their root competition to make elbow room for their kids. When mother trees are injured or dying, they also send messages of wisdom onto the next generation of seedlings. So we've used isotope tracing to trace carbon moving from an injured mother tree down her trunk into the microcausal network and into her neighbouring seedlings, not only carbon but also defence signals. And these two compounds have increased the resistance of those seedlings to future stresses. So trees talk. So that's the end of the excerpt that I included in my writing as part of building my own sensitivity and awareness around non-human species and their magnificence and their life force and their actual love for each other. Now, coming to Simmons. Finding the Mother Tree uh, book, I have, like, it's a really beautiful book if you ever get the chance to read it, because what she does, which I maybe won't give a very good sense of today because of how I've selected only certain parts, what she does is come into her own life story and share that generously with us, including her own struggle with breast cancer, um, and in and around that tells the story of her research work and her reaching out to, especially to the First Nation people in Canada, to um, acknowledge and understand how their wisdom was really predates certainly white people's science, but is very compatible with uh, Simmons' research. And so I think it's a really, really cool book, an exciting book to read. And the it was very hard to make some choices about what I shared with you today. Um, but let me just begin at the front of the book um, with just uh, really only a couple of pages, not even that, that gives you a flavour for who she is. And this is uh, on page three of the book in a chapter called Connections. For generations, my family has made its living cutting down forests. Our survival has depended on this humble trade. It is my legacy. I have cut down my fair share of trees as well. But nothing lives on our planet without death and decay. From this brings new life, and from this birth will come new death. This spiral of living taught me to become a sower of seeds too, a planter of seedlings, a keeper of saplings, a part of the cycle. The forest itself is part of much larger cycles, building of soil and migration of species and circulation of oceans. The source of clean air and pure water and good food. There is a necessary wisdom in the give and take of nature, its quiet agreements and search for balance. There is an extraordinary generosity. Working to solve the mysteries of what made the forests tick and how they are linked to the earth and fire and water made me a scientist. I watched the forest and I listened. I followed where my curiosity led me. I listened to the stories of my family and people, and I learned from the scholars. Step by step, puzzle by puzzle, I poured everything. Oh, I just lost the page. Hold on. <laughs> I poured everything I had into becoming a sleuth of what it takes to heal the natural world. 
I was lucky to become one of the first in the new generation of women in the logging industry, but what I found was not what I had grown up to understand. Instead, I discovered vast landscapes cleared of trees, soils stripped of nature's complexity, a persistent harshness of elements, communities devoid of old trees, leaving the young ones vulnerable, and an industrial order that felt hugely, terribly misguided. The industry had declared war on those parts of the ecosystem, the leafy plants and the broad tre- broadleaf trees, the nibblers and gleaners and infestors, that were seen as competitors and parasites on cash crops. But that I was discovering were necessary for healing the earth. The whole forest, central to my being and my sense of the universe, was suffering from this disruption. And because of this, all else suffered too. I set out on scientific expeditions to figure out where we had gone so very wrong and to unlock the mysteries of why the land mended itself when left to its own devices. As I'd seen happen when my ancestors logged with a lighter touch. Just coming now quite a way forward in the book. Let me just find the best way to, it's in the chapter called Passing the Wand. I pick up, pick up some of the story. Um, and this is where, uh, Simard has come with some of her postgraduate students, uh, back to a site where she had worked many years before. Um, and just after she had been given the all clear on her chemo treatment. So she's talking about the site that contains some of her oldest experiments. Um, and here, here's uh, where we pick up the story of some of what she was noticing in coming back to the trees that she had previously been very uh, involved with, with measuring and treating in a scientific way. The next birch had been bent over. So, sorry, I should say that she's walking in and amongst the forest um, with her family and with, with her research colleagues. The next birch had been bent over by a moose who'd munched on its tender shoots. On the banks of the Adams River, half a kilometre east, where the birches were 30 metres tall, the elk and deer and snowshoe hares ate the branches and buds too and beavers built lodges with the waterproof stems and grouse nested in the leaves and sapsuckers and woodpeckers carved out cavities later used by owls and hawks. The roots of these distinguished birches drank the water of the glacial-fed river and water, and the water turning red with spawning salmon in the fall. I'd been wondering if the birches were also nourished by the fish carcasses seeping back into the riverbanks. Come back to that point in a, a little moment with another st- aspect to her story. On page 20, uh, 281 and continuing, within a few hours we discovered that the birch trees, whose roots ran freely and connected with the firs, were almost twice the size of those in the trenched plots and they were free of disease. Compared to the birches we'd thinned alongside the creek nearly two decades ago, these were smaller and they were, but they were healthy the papery bark thick, branches few, valuable for, despite branches being fewer, they were valuable for making baskets. 
The bigger branches were especially the kind that Mary Thomas, an elder of the Chewekum Nation, said would be good for harvesting bark. Mary Thomas's grandmother showed her how to pull the bark so as not to hurt the tree, as her grandmother had shown her and as Mary would show her own grandchildren. Teaching them how to leave the pulpy cambium intact so it would be primed to hew over to ensure the tree seeded new generations. They used the bark in, to make baskets of all sizes, some for the thim, some for the thimbleberries, cranberries, and strawberries. The impermeable bark of the bigger birches down by the river would be perfect for canoes, the luxuriant leaves for soap and shampoo, the sap for tonics and medicines the best wood for bowls and toboggans. With care, planted in rich soil, with good neighbours, in proper numbers and with roots unrestrained, even these upland birches could become prominent providers in the forest. And continuing... Woven along the birch, among the birches, the firs were also a little bigger than where we'd trenched between them and they were in prime condition. In the early years, the microcosal connections with birch had helped the saplings, first saplings grow taller and in adulthood, this head start still mattered. Two decades later, the firs performed better in the neighbourhood of birches than where they'd been cut off from their neighbours or where they'd grown only among other firs. They had better nutrition. The rich birch leaves building the soil and less root disease, the bacteria along the birch roots providing a bundle of nitrogen and immunity with a potent mix of antibiotics and other inhibitory compounds. Grown intimately together, this forest had almost twice the productivity of the stands where we trenched between the species two decades earlier. This was the opposite of usual foresters' expectations. They figured that fir roots, free of birch interference, would obtain more of the resource pie, as though the ecosystem worked in a zero-sum game. Zero sum game. The adamant belief that the greater total productivity cannot possibly emerge from species interaction. Even more surprising to me was that birch benefited from fir too. Not only did birches likewise grow at twice the rate when intimately connected with firs than when alone, but they also had fewer root infections. The birches that delivered food and good health to the firs when they were young were now being held in reciprocity by the bigger firs as adults. Although the birches were retreating as the firs grew skyward, as happens naturally with the ageing of these forests, their roots were still deep in the soil, their legacy of fungi and bacteria intact, lifeblood painted, life painted indelibly into the canvas. At the next major disturbance, a fire or an insect outbreak or some type of infection, the roots and stumps would sprout again bringing a new generation of birches as much a part of the cycle as fir. Mary Thomas's grandmother and mother had taught her how to show gratitude for the birches, to take no more than she needed, to place an offering in thanks. Mary Thomas had even called the birches mother trees long before I had stumbled onto that notion. Mary's people had known this of the birches for thousands of years, 
from living in the forest, their precious home, and learning from all living things, respecting them as equal partners. The word equal is where Western philosophy stumbles. It maintains that we are superior, having dominion over all that is nature. Just as I'm coming to another segment, I actually really wanted to share that cross-influence that Simard is gaining from honouring of the relationships she has and the knowledge that she has with First Nation people in her in her home country and in the area where she lives. Okay, just coming over the page uh, a little bit further now, page 283, and referring back to the wisdom of First Nation people. I had been given a glimpse of these ideals, almost as a stroke of luck, through the rigid lens of Western science. I've been taught in the university to take apart the ecosystem, to reduce it into its parts, to study the trees and plants and soil in isolation, so that I could look at the forest objectively. This dissection, this control and categorization, were supposed to bring clarity, credibility and validation to any findings. When I followed these steps of taking the system apart to look at the pieces, I was able to publish my results, and I soon learned that it was almost impossible for a study of the diversity and connectivity of a whole ecosystem to get into print. There's no control, the reviewers cried at my early papers. Somehow, with my Latin squares and factorial designs, my isotopes and mass spectrometers and scintillation counters, my training to consider only sharp lines of statistically significant differences, I had come full circle to stumble upon some of the indigenous ideals. Diversity matters, and everything in the universe is connected between the forest and prairies, the land and the water, the sky and the soil, the spirits and the living, the people and all other creatures. Just coming forward now to a section in that same chapter. And if you bear with me, I just want to get the... I think uh, this is page 286 and a little bit um, of what she had discovered very early on, just catching that point here. Um, the mother trees not only send carbon to help support the microcausal fungal symbionts, they somehow enhance the health of their own kin and not only their own kin, but of strangers too and other species, promoting the diversity of the community. Was this all luck? I think the trees had been telling me something all along. I'd had a hunch that those little yellow spruce seedlings back in 1980, the ones who'd sent me on this long journey of a lifetime, were suffering because their roots couldn't connect with the soil. Now I knew they lacked microcausal fungi, whose hyphae would not only have extracted nutrients from the forest floor, but also connected the seedlings to the mother trees, providing them with carbon and nitrogen until they could stand on their own. But their roots had been confined to their plugs, isolated from the old trees. The sulfine fir that had naturally regenerated on the outskirts of the mother trees, though, had been lush with sustenance. 
But the lingering question, since my illness, still haunted me. If we are equal to everything in nature, do we share the same goals in death? To pass the wand as best we can, passing onward to children the most crucial material. Unless the essential energy went directly to a mother tree's offspring, stem, needles, buds and all, not just into the underground network, I couldn't be sure that the connection increased their fitness beyond that of the fungus. What what we go on to having a look at now um, is a little more of her experimenting in the current time, and she's speaking uh, on page 287. I was burning to know whether they were robust enough sinks to draw the carbon released by the injured mother trees into their roots. Using the survivors, the day when my colleague and I were scrolling through graphs of data as if watching a movie, all the other factors we tested were significant, whether the seedlings were related to the mother trees, whether they were connected or whether they were injured. The mother tree seedlings transmitted more carbon to kin than strangers, but unlike the earlier study where we'd only detected carbon moving into the microcausal fungi of the kin seedlings, the Monica study now found that it went straight into their long leaders. The mother tree seedlings flooded the microcausal network with their carbon energy and it advanced into needles of her kin, her sustenance soon within them. The data also showed that injury, whether by western spruce budworm or shears, induced the mother tree seedlings to transfer even more carbon to her kin. Facing an uncertain future, she was passing her life force straight into her offspring, helping them prepare for the dangers ahead. And the crucial point here that Simard is coming to, dying of the mother tree enabled the living. The aged fueled their young. This has really significant implications, um, and this is what she goes on to consider on page 288. The practical application, what this might mean for forest management, is that elders that survived climate change in the past ought to be kept around because they can spread their seed into the disturbed areas and pass their genes and energy and resilience into the future. Not only a few elders, but a range of species of many genotypes, kin and strangers, a natural mix to ensure the forest is varied and adaptive. My wish is that we might think twice about salvage harvesting the dying mother trees, might be compelled to leave a portion behind to take care of the young, not merely their own, but those of their neighbours too. In the wake of diebacks from droughts, beetles, budworms and fires, the timber industry has been cutting vast swaths of forest, the clear cuts coalescing over whole watersheds, entire valleys mowed down. The dead trees have been considered a fire risk, but more likely a convenient commodity. Great numbers of healthy neighbours have also been captured for the mills as collateral damage. This salvage clear-cutting has been amplifying carbon emissions, changing the seasonal hydrology in watersheds and in some cases causing streams to flood their banks. With few trees left, the sediments are flowing down into the rivulets 
and into the rivers, already warming with climate change, harming the salmon runs even further. Just now on page 288, I wanted to spend a, a little bit of time with one of her current experiments, um, which I think is, is totally fascinating for the interconnectivity, not only between trees um, and fungi and the microcausal networks, but also between other species. This brings me to another adventure, one I'm still exploring because it speaks so graphically to the species connections we overlook. Scientists before me have discovered that the nitrogen from decayed salmon lives in the rings of trees along the rivers from where they came. I wanted to know whether salmon nitrogen was absorbed by microcausal fungi of the mother trees and transmis transmitted through their networks to other trees deeper in the forest. Even more, were the salmon nutrients in the trees declining with the reduction in salmon population and habitat loss, causing the forest to suffer? If so, could this be re remedied? Some months later, I was with in the salmon forest of the Hilosuk people and in travelling with several people, uh, both colleagues and friends, uh, they came with, in particular, the particular person they came with among other other colleagues was Dr. Teresa Simhaisek Ryan of the Simshayan Nation um, and the people of the Skeena River to the north. Teresa was a traditional cedar basket weaver as well as a salmon fishery scientist on the Canadian-US Pacific Salmon Commission, which is one of many hats that she wore. She wanted to know, as an Aboriginal person and a scientist, whether restoring the traditional fishing practices using tidal stone trap technology could reinvigorate the salmon populations, perhaps to levels before the colonists took control of the fishery. This in turn might nourish the cedars from which she gathered bark. We were in search of the bones of salmon carried into the forest by bears and wolves and eagles. The bones were all that was were left once the flesh was eaten and the residual tissue decayed, nutrients seeping into the forest floor. In the, in the inlet, Tom, one of my scientist colleagues, and John, another colleague, had discovered salmon nitrogen in rings of cedars and circus and in the plants, insects, and soils. Alan would start our study of microcausal fungi, of how microcausal fungi might transmit the salmon into the trees and possibly be tree between trees by determining how the microcosal fungal communities differed alongside streams with various salmon population sizes. Could a difference in the fungi in their ability to transmit the salmon nutrients help account for the great fertility of these rainforests? I could barely contain my excitement as Alan, Teresa and I jumped into the sedges with our hip waders and headed to shore. And they go on to account for the whole challenge of going into bear-infested areas, um, recognising at the same time that these are exactly the areas where bears would be uh, obviously eating the salmon that they wanted to understand in terms of the life-death cycle. Okay, so coming through a little further, <laughs> um, on page 291, uh, 
they found they discovered in fact under the boughs of the old mother tree a little way into um, a crevice that they were literally crawling along in the forest was a cozy mossy bed large enough for mama bear and her cub dozens of white salmon skeletons gleamed from the carpet the flesh long long decayed the vertebrae unhinged the fine corsets of bones folded like butterfly wings the scales and gills asunder the essence of the fish slowly absorbed by the roots transmitted into the wood of the tree passed to the next life and on page 292 there's a very short sentence in italics that says tree bones she continues and I collected soil from under the bones and for comparison from places where there were no bones. We returned to the others, jumping onto the boat and uh, from the high tide, onto the boat from the high tide line, storing the samples on ice to prevent degradation of the DNA. They travelled back along the walls, uh, the forest floor, following the forest floor along the waterways. The wall was one of hundreds of tidal traps built along the Pacific coastline by the Hiltsa people, similar to those built by the Nungcha Nok and other First Nation people, to harvest salmon passively, to keep track of the populations and to adjust harvests accordingly. They collected the fish trapped at low tide, releasing the biggest egg-bearing females to continue up the river to spawn. They smoked, dried or cooked the fish, buried the guts in the forest floor and returned the bones to the water to nourish the ecosystem. This practice enhanced the salmon populations and the productivity of the forest rivers and estuaries. The forest, rich with salmon, returned the favour by shading the rivers, shedding nutrient into the waters and providing habitat for the bears, wolves and eagles. Teresa explained that when the colonists took jurisdiction of the waters and forests, they forbade the use of the stone traps. The salmon were overfished within the first two decades and have yet to recover fully. Climate change and a warming Pacific Ocean have created new problems by exhausting the fish on their marathon from the ocean, reducing their success at reaching the the natal spawning streams. It's part of a general pattern of destroying interconnecting habitats. To the north, the last of the cedars, somewhat more than a thousand year old, are bearing clear cut are being clear-cut on Graham Island, leaving the forest along the sprawling trees, sprawling rivers degraded, and the Hade are wondering what will happen to their way of life. When will this stop, this unravelling? On page 293, just a few sentences later, she continues, This study is ongoing, but our early data show that the microcausal fungal community in the salmon forest differs depending on the number of salmon returning to their natal streams. We still don't know how far into the forest the microcausal network is transporting the salmon nitrogen and if or how restoration of the tidal stone traps might affect forest health. But we are starting new research and reconstructing some of the stone walls to find answers. I've been wondering too if we should check whether salmon also nourish mainland forests from rivers that run inland. Do spawning salmon feed the cedars and birches and spruces along the rivers that run thousands of kilometres into the mountains? 
such as along the Adams River running below my experiment. Salmon in this way, connecting the ocean to, with the continent. The Siwipin people knew how vital salmon was to the interior forests and to their livelihoods, and they'd cared for the populations according to far-reaching principles of interconnectedness. Thanksgiving that year found me driving home past clear cuts as chainsaws were bringing down the beetle-infested mother trees before their seeds had germinated in the turned-up duff. Slash piles of elders stood as tall as apartment buildings, access roads crisscrossed the valleys, and creeks were clogged with sediment. Planted seedlings stood encased in white plastic tubes like crosses. The cracks are in plain view. I came from a family of loggers, and I'm not unmindful that we need trees for our livelihoods. But my salmon trip showed that with taking something comes the obligation to give back. Of late, I've become increasingly enchanted by the story by the subject who talks of the trees as people. Not only with a sort of intelligent intelligence akin to us humans, or even a spiritual quality perhaps not unlike ours not merely as equivalent to people with the same bearings. They are people, the tree people. This is page 294. Two incredibly beautiful sentences to reflect on. They are tree people, the tree people. Simat continues. I don't presume to grasp Aboriginal knowledge fully. It comes from a way of knowing the earth, an epistemology different from that of my own culture. It speaks of being attuned to the blossoming of the bitterroot, the running of the salmon, the cycles of the moon, of knowing that we are tied to the land, the trees and animals and soil and water, and to one another, and that we have a responsibility to care for these connections and resources, ensuring the sustainability of these ecosystems for future generations, and to honour those who have come before of treading lightly, taking only what gifts we need and giving back, of showing humility toward and tolerance for all we are connected to in this circle of life. But what my years in the forestry profession have also shown me is that too many decision makers dismiss this way of viewing nature and rely only on select parts of science. The impact has become too devastating to ignore. We can compare the condition of the land where it has been torn apart, each resource treated in isolation from the rest, to where it has been cared for according to First Nation principles of we are all related and we are one. We must heed the answers we've been given. I believe this kind of transformative thinking is what will save us. It is a philosophy of treating the world's creatures, its gifts, as of equal importance to us. This begins by recognising that trees and plants have agency. They perceive, they relate and communicate. They exercise various behaviours. They cooperate, make decisions, learn and remember. Qualities we normally ascribe to sentience, wisdom and intelligence. By noting how trees, animals and even fungi any and all non-human species have this agency, we can acknowledge that they deserve as much regard as we accord ourselves. 
we can continue pushing our Earth out of balance with greenhouse gases accelerating each year. Or we can regain balance by acknowledging that if we harm one species, one forest, one lake, this ripples through the entire complex web. Mistreatment of one species is mistreatment of all. The rest of the planet has been waiting patiently for us to figure this out. Making this transformation requires that humans reconnect with nature, the forests, the prairies, the oceans, instead of treating everything and everyone as objects for exploitation. It means expanding our modern ways, our epistemology and scientific methodologies so that they complement, build on and align with Aboriginal roots. Mowing down the forests and harvesting the waters to fill our wildest dreams of material wealth just because we can has caught up to us. So just wanting to come across a little further, getting toward the end of what I'm wanting to share with you today, and hopefully you're finding uh, this inspiring because, <laughs> um, you know, it just has changed my my sense of how I belong in the world, that is for sure. And coming to page 300, where Simad continues, trees need to be near one another to establish a receptive soil, to join together to build the ecosystem, mix with other species, relate in patterns that produce a wood-wide web, <laughs> as distinct from the internet, <laughs> world worldwide web because the forests become resilient from this complexity scientists are now more willing to say that forests are complex adaptive systems comprised of many species that adjust and learn that include legacies such as old trees and seed banks and logs and that these parts interact in intricate dynamic networks with information feedbacks and self-organization Systems-level properties emerge from this that add up more than the sum of its parts. The properties of an ecosystem breathe with health, productivity, beauty, spirit. Clean air, clean water, fertile soil. The forest is wired for healing in this way, and we can help it if we follow her lead. I just want to now come to what is actually the epilogue in Simard's book called The Mother Tree Project um, and, you know, her legacy uh, and uh, the work that she's doing is incredibly important on the planet and reaffirms the stewardship of First Nation people as well. And it's called The Mother Tree Project. So it consists of nine experimental forests located across a climate ra ra rainbow in British Columbia, from hot and dry forests in the southeast corner of the province to cold and wet stands in the north central interior. They're examining the structures and functions of the forest, how webs of relationships play out in real environments and change with forest cutting patterns that retain various numbers of mother trees and plantations that contain different tree species mixtures. We want to make educated guesses about which combinations of harvesting and planting will be the most resilient to the stresses our planet is facing, how the healthiest connections can thrive alongside our needs to use resources from the forest. Our goal is to further develop an emergent philosophy called complexity science. 
based on embracing collaboration in addition to competition, indeed, working with all the multifarious interactions that make up the forest. Complexity science can transform forestry practices into what is adaptive and holistic and away from what has been overly authoritarian and simplistic. By now, everyone knows about the consequences of climate change, and almost no one has escaped its direct wrath. Concentrations of carbon dioxide have exploded. As I sit here writing, concentrations have exceeded 412 ppm, and at the rate we are going, when our children are grown, we will reach 450 ppm level that scientists consider a tipping point. This is on page 305. But I am hopeful. Sometimes when it seems nothing will budge, there's a shift. Based on my research, the free-to-grow policy was revamped back in 2000 to tolerate a few birches and aspens in certain areas of the province, though fundamental attitudes had not fully changed. These leafy trees were still viewed as competitors, irritants, but now there are young foresters out there on the land writing thoughtful prescriptions and applying the ideas of saving old trees and encouraging forest diversity. We have the power to shift course. It's our disconnectedness and lost understanding about the amazing capacities of nature that's driving a lot of our despair, and plants in particular are objects of our abuse. By understanding their sentient qualities, our empathy and love for trees, plants and forest will naturally deepen and find innovative solutions. Turning to the intelligence of nature itself is the key. It is up to each and every one of us. Connect with plants you can call your own. If you're in a city, set a pot on your balcony. If you have a yard, start a garden or join a community plot. Here's a simple and productive action you can take right now. Go find a tree, your tree. Imagine linking her into your network and how she connects to other trees nearby. Open your senses. And she puts an invitation, if you wish, to reach out to the Mother Tree Project and find ways of contributing. Okay, so I hope you gained from hearing my excerpts from her beautiful book, Susan Simmons' beautiful book, Finding the Mother Tree. It, it is actually hard to read it, even though I've read it now several times, for the kinds of mixed feelings it generates for me, but really the most important feeling that I get from her work and all the people who work alongside her, including First Nation people and the way her, Simmons' work affirms their knowledge, um, is one of hopefulness and opportunity to make a difference at this time on the planet. And it really um, gives me more confidence when I am grappling with this idea of a theory of love and wanting the most important principle in that theory to be an equal regard for the intrinsic moral worth of all sentient and non-sentient beings on the planet. I just really believe that that is revolutionary in its potential if we grasp that and I invite conversation with you um, and connection with you if you'd like to talk further about this. Um, anyway, that's the most inspiring book I've read for a long time, and I'm really hoping that it's given you some feeling of upliftment and support in your contributions towards trees on the planet at this time. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Bye now.